coming up on Caffeinated Theology. It looks as if the universe uh, has some design to it. If you look at uh, the building that we're in now, it's like, how do you know that someone built it? Well, because it's there. Yeah. It takes you right to the beginning of the gospel. Exactly. Uh, yeah. The fall of man and, and mm-hmm. sin has corrupted. The last uh, bit of coffee grounds to our pour over. Discussing theological truths for biblical living. Reviewing featured coffee roast and premium brewing techniques. This is the Caffeinated Theology Podcast, bringing you biblical truths over a fine cup of coffee. Well, good day. Welcome to Caffeinated Theology, episode number four. Uh, Today we're going to talk about a topic that is widely debated and widely controversial. Uh, It is the argument for the existence of God. Uh, Does God exist? What evidence do we have through reasoning? And what evidence do we have if we are allowed to navigate through the Christian scriptures? What evidence are we allowed to use in, uh, in public debate or in the public square on Making a defense for the existence um, of God. It's kind of a, a last week, common ground if you joined us point, last week, if not, I'll challenge you. Go back and check episode three last week on the character and nature of God. We talked about Yahweh and Elohim and the names of God. Uh, we spoke about the Trinity and tried to get our mind around how to describe the Trinity. And uh, I kind of played the devil's devil's advocate a little bit. And I asked the question, is the word Trinity in the Bible? And we discussed that at um, you know, a good detail. So go back, check out episode three if you haven't checked that out. Uh, but before we get into this, uh, this argument for the existence of God or arguments for the existence of God, let's, uh, let's think back last episode on the character and nature of, of God. Anything that you guys might want to add uh, to to that study from last week that we did not cover, or some things you might want to add before we before we press on. Yeah, we touched on it a little bit last week, uh, but just anytime you start thinking on and discussing God's character and nature, and and talk about His holiness and His perfectness and His greatness, uh, it just re- reminds us of of our um, fallen nature of our uh, inability to be able to um, even um, come before him on our own. And Mm -hmm. I I know last week after our discussion, uh, it's just, just, I kind of had a, um, a sense of gratitude and, and worship even, and just remembering Mm -hmm. who God is and, uh, and how he's, he, he loves us and sent Christ, you know, this, this great creator, um, who uh, is really indescribable? We talked yeah. about when, in talking about the Trinity how we can really not uh, even come close to fully understanding and describing God uh, because He's just so great. And uh, any time for me, at least, when I really sit down and contemplate or read things or just think deeply about who God is, it always brings me to a place of worship and gratitude um, that. Uh, um, that he would be mindful of us and uh, send Christ 
on our behalf yeah. uh, because he loves us. I think I made a comment last week, you know, God is just and holy and perfect. Um, but what's really so amazing is his love for us. Yeah. I would say the, you talking about the Trinity kind of like last week, um, I thought it was funny because I, I went uh, home and I think it was the following day. Um, I've, y'all, I've talked to y'all about this, but, but uh, for those who don't know, i uh, I talk with people online a lot, quite frequently, about the gospel, and uh, there's a lot of people who struggle with the idea of the Trinity, and uh, they they kind of stumble over that, and they you know specifically the divinity of Christ, um, and I hope that I shared the uh, shared the podcast with them. Hopefully that'll you know break down some stuff for them. But um, I think the Trinity is one of those one of the big ones when it comes to a lot of people stumble over. Uh, the idea of the Trinity, uh, like you said, we're playing devil's advocate. That is, you don't see the word Trinity in the in the written down in in the New Testament or, or the Old Testament. But if you look at the Old Testament, New Testament, it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I'll say too, Lloyd. On that note, uh, <clears throat> I know in my ministry, I can't tell you how many times um, maybe me and Larry were talking about something, or I was you know in, in whatever I was reading. Uh, within a week, uh, mm-hmm. it comes up practically for ministry. It happens yeah. all yeah. the time. The Lord, it's, it's just amazing how mm-hmm. um, the God who created everything and created the universe works mm-hmm. in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And when you think about things like that, like you, we discussed it and it came up mm-hmm. in just a matter of a day or two for you. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you how many. You'll, you'll experience that all throughout your ministry. Right. Well, you know, that is testament to what we're trying to do with this podcast is uh, when you approach theological um, ideas and thoughts, we are not trying to just simply give you information for information dump, you know. There's a practical end to it. And if it's bringing people to worship, if it's bringing people you know, towards worship and thinking on the things of God a little bit more clearly and, and, and you know, a little bit more disciplined. And I think that's the purpose of, you know, the podcast. Hey, that's why we're, hopefully that's our, you know, our goal is not just to give information to sound like, you know, we're smart or anything like that, but just to lead folks to, to better think about the things of God and then to, to worship him. Um, because of it. All right, so let's um, let's think about the existence of God. Now, when we approach systematic theology at the forefront, <clears throat> when we sit down to talk about theological ideas and precepts, we're already approaching it with the presupposition that God exists. Okay, we've kind of established that early on in you know, either the first or second episode, I think, of caffeinated theology. And we approach it with that understanding that God exists. But for uh, for continuing conversation to lead to a gospel conversation, I think it's important that we understand at least what the world is trying to articulate about the existence of God. And the reason we do that is we want to continue conversations with people and lead them to the gospel. So there'll be a few things that we mentioned today <clears throat> that are that are in the realm of philosophy and 
hopefully lead to gospel conversations. So that's what we're going to talk about today in the existence of God. So let me let me start out. Um, I'm going to ask I'm going to ask y'all a question. Um, what are some arguments that you've heard uh, on the existence of God? Maybe some popular ones that have you've heard people used. Um, what might be some that you've heard that that are well known? Yeah, the most recent one I, I see it. I mean, weekly almost on social media and all over the place is just the this framework for the idea of um, kind of pairing the Big Bang and saying like you had to have someone okay. time space matter and you had to have someone who transcends those things, someone who's outside of time space matter to be able to put things in motion. Okay, um, and kind of put, and they use that as a framework. They, I mean, I've seen it been taken multiple ways, but kind of starting with that. And then see, like you have to have someone above it. And sometimes they go into like, um, like we'll talk about a little bit later, the, the idea that everything has uh, what's intelligent design. Like it wasn't just by chance, like a bomb exploded, mm-hmm. and then you, now you have books in a library. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. But it's that someone <clears throat> actually designed all those things intricately. And um, <laughs> uh, to me, that's I think that's very popular with my age group right now. It's just this idea of uh, the time space matter. Mm-hmm. I, I hear that on a weekly mm-hmm. basis. Certainly, in the in the realm of uh, um, you know intellectual uh, mm-hmm. discussion, um, I think the number one uh, um, argument for the existence of God that that we hear uh, across the board we've already covered, um, which is creation, yeah, and seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seeing God's handiwork, yeah. and uh, if you want to, uh, for our listeners, uh, if you want to um, hear more about that particular topic, uh, that's episode two of, of the mm-hmm. podcast. If you hadn't checked that one out, but um, that that by far, at least in my experience, is um, the number one argument uh, as far as mm-hmm. you most often hear when you start talking about the existence of God mm-hmm. is uh, is that general revelation his. Uh, his creation. Okay. So, one of the arguments I think I've heard as well is, is, is you, know, you guys mentioned it, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, J. Vernon McGee is well, well, well known amongst uh, folks of you know in the eighties and you know in seventies. J. Vernon McGee, um, he made that saying popular you know that thought popular that what if all these letters uh and words exploded and then they all landed on a book and then all those books landed in the library you know you wouldn't say anything like that so why would you say something like that about about Mm -hmm. the created order that it just bang and it all landed perfectly in place um of course skeptics would say that that happened over billion year span you know uh, but it's still chance it still is the element of chance there yeah and, and you know we'll get to that uh, you said the skeptics would say it happened over a billion year span or that you know mm-hmm. the universe is infinite in both directions and because you have infinite time eventually it would happen and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that how that doesn't uh that just doesn't add up no. when you really start reasoning through that <clears throat> All right, so some of the popular ones that are kind of really what we're going to talk about today uh, is three basic ones, and then we'll talk a few about more pointed special revelation. 
Uh, really, all of the arguments we're going to talk about today <clears throat> are to get you to a place for a theistic worldview. Uh, these are to get the person to a place uh, through reasoning that will get them to a place that there must be an intelligent designer or uh, God, uh, you know, must be a God, whether it's a God of Christian scripture, whatever. But the whole point is to get to the cross, to the resurrection, to the gospel. Thomas Aquinas is well known for laying out some five, five arguments for the existence of God. And Thomas Aquinas believed that reason and, and revelation are, go hand in hand. In fact, he would almost put revelation and reason pretty close on the paradigm of course, I would not. Um, I would put special revelation, uh, but I certainly wouldn't dismiss reason um, altogether um, as far as knowing God. But I believe God gives us reasoning capabilities to know him and to be able to navigate through the things we see and be able to come to a conclusion that there is an intelligent designer. There is a God. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of these ideas. We're not going to talk about all of Here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to walk through um, logical syllogisms through each one. We're just not going to do that. Uh, we're trying to make this palatable for uh, for our for use for you for personal study. If you want to further your study on each one of these, by all means, do so. Uh, but we're going to try to break down each one of these uh, today and talk about uh, the ontological argument for the existence of God, which is the argument for a being. Ontology is being. We're going to talk about the cosmological argument, which is uh, causation, cause and effect. We're talking about the teleological argument, which is that from design. We're going to talk about the moral argument, which is pretty self-explanatory. Um, if there is moral law, then there must be a moral lawgiver and a sense of oughtness. And then we're going to talk about the resurrection as proof of God's existence. And I'll just go ahead and tell you that um, it's kind of what you would do with deductive, deductive reasoning um, or inductive, whichever way you want to look at it, is the best explanation uh, for the resurrection is the empty tomb. And if the tomb is empty, then there must be uh, then there must be a God that brought it all to pass. We'll talk about that a little bit further. Um, hope you'll uh, uh, stick around and enjoy. Uh, not only talking about these arguments, but also enjoying a good uh, cup of coffee today. And uh, Jason, any words before we press on about our coffee today? Well, last week we had said we were going to do a mystery uh, bean, and uh, we're going to do that in the future. But uh, um, the mystery this week came about a little bit differently. Uh, I think it was Thursday, Larry texted me and said did you order a, a some coffee from uh, uh was it Buscardu 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 yeah. <laughs> we got a, a delivery from Buscardu coffee company and I said well no I didn't order any mm -hmm. and uh he didn't order and we come to find out how his son Noah um sent it to us and uh, we're going to review that today uh mm -hmm. we have the beans here and they're fresh so we want to review them while they're fresh and uh, we will in the future do a mystery bean where we go to the store and just grab the first thing we yeah. see. 
Um, but next week we're going to uh, be doing a bean that uh, we roast right here on the podcast. Um, friend of the the uh, program, uh, Jason White, is going to roast some beans for us, and uh, he'll actually join us as our guest next week. Mm-hmm. But um, today we're going to review Busker Do. Um, and I think we're going to bring in a pour over. Larry's going to help us with that, I think. And uh, just a little bit about Busker Do. It is one of the darkest roasts I've ever seen. <laughs> so uh, it's good for a dark roast uh, like that. And we'll, we'll talk more about that yeah. uh, coming up. Right. Okay, stick around. We'll start on the ontological argument and uh, we'll work from there. Okay, so we're going to talk about the ontological argument first. And. That's probably the one that does get a lot of attention from the skeptical um, philosophical uh, framework. But ontological argument, ontology is just simply an argument for being. Uh, God being, and um, we've talked about his character attributes already from a biblical aspect. Uh, But the question really comes from Anselm of Canterbury, uh, who talked about there being a maximally powerful and excellent being. So let me ask you, let me ask you guys a question. Um, Can you think of a greater being than, let's let's say, the God of the Bible? Can you think of, can you think of something that is maximally greater than, than that or the idea of God? If uh, if you know, we talked about last week God being um, omnipotent and uh, um, omniscient yeah. and omnipresent, and you know, it's kind of all powerful. Then obviously the answer to that is yeah. no. You can't be beyond all yeah. powerful. Because if you could, if we could think of someone beyond God, then he's not all. Then that would be God. Then that person. Then that, that would, would be God. God. Yeah. yeah. So, so the argument goes that. Um, God, the idea of God as the greatest maximal being uh, can be placed in any possible world and still be and still be the you know um, maximally great. So any possible world where God would exist in, He is maximally great and excellent in those worlds too. Uh, and really, it's like this. Let me let me kind of put it in terms that we might be able to get our mind around a little bit better. So I have a finite mind. God is by definition infinite. At the burning bush, we talked about this. He said, "I am." He, he Yahweh, I am at the burning bush, which in a improper vernacular, he's saying, "I is." <laughs> I've always existed, self-existing one. We in our finite mind can't get our mind around that thought. And because our mind can't get around that thought of infinite, uh, of infinite being, it helps lay validity to his existence. I can't think of, can, I, can you in your mind go to a point and say, yeah, that's, that's eternity or, you know, in the future or infinite. I, I can't do it because our mind is finite, which helps to supply the, conclusion that God must be that great or perfect, maximally great being who exists. 
Okay, now we can't just hover in that argument and get to the cross. So the point is getting to the cross in these arguments. So uh, that's basically kind of the, you know, a real thumbnail sketch of the ontological argument. Uh, some good resources on uh, on the ontological argument are Alvin Plantiga, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, these guys who who that it's their discipline uh, to to go through these arguments for the existence of God. All right, second um, argument that is well known and used a lot is the cosmological argument, and basically this is cause and effect. Um, again, I'm not trying to lay out the syllogisms here, uh, but I think Lloyd's touched on it, and Jason has as well. Um, the cosmological f is that of of cause and effect. Um, I think it was Anselm. No, it was Aristotle. Aristotle first that talked about the unmoved mover, cause and effect. Um, something had to move something somewhere. So let's uh, let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, cause and effect. All right. So the idea behind this is um, something had to move something. So again, we're trying to put this in very simple terms. Something had to move something. All right, and the idea of something you know cannot come from nothing. We we probably hear that a lot. Um, we don't get something from nothing, and that really is the basis behind that argument. You had to have something move something. Yeah, I think just a little bit of stuff you can kind of discuss about and reason through is observable things. Um, when you start talking about uh, cosmology and uh, and that. That argument, you, a lot of times you go to the way the universe is set up. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think William Lane Craig. I don't know if he was if he's the one who coined the uh, razor's edge argument. Uh, Occam's razor. Um, I know. I know he uh, he uses that a lot. Uh -huh. um, but just how how the universe is fine tuned on um, what would be the razor's a razor's edge. I think I think of it's funny because every time I um, watch Lord of the Rings um, in in the movie, they talk about their quest being on the edge of a knife. Um, if you stray but uh, just a bit, you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. um, and really, that's the same same idea. Uh, the way that the universe is fine tuned to support uh, life. Um, and there's a great video uh, um, that we'll link in the description that, that gives some of the um, numbers that go along with that fine-tuning. Um, but if it just varied just the really the most minute, almost immeasurable uh, little little bit, um, the, the Earth or the whole universe would not support uh, life whatsoever. So that's one observable thing that uh, you see design, what caused that to come together um, to support life. Um, another one we were talking about a little while ago is um, you, you, you can observe mm -hmm. the expansion of the universe, um, how it's expanding out from what would seem to be a central um, point. Um, and if you kind of would, would reverse that, uh, go back in time, if you will, um, where it's you know going back to that center that point, point, eventually you will get mm -hmm. to a starting point, um, a stopping point, and that's what we were talking about earlier when uh, you, we would say the skeptics would say, uh, you know, over a course of infinity, um, 
you know, we would we would think it silly to say um, if you took a bunch of words and um, set off a mm-hmm. bomb that they'd fall together in a book. They would say over a course of infinite time, eventually it would happen. But we can observe that the universe is expanding, mm-hmm. which uh, reason would tell us if you put that in reverse, you get to a starting point. Mm-hmm. So we don't have infinity. Yeah. Uh, we don't have an infinite amount of yeah. time um, for what we observe um, mm-hmm. as reality to occur, yeah. which points back to design, creation, mm-hmm. God. The uh, cosmological argument is also called the Kalam argument. This is made popular by William Lane Craig. Uh, Dr. William Lane Craig made the Kalam argument uh, more well-known as far as cosmology, and it really does go back to an 11th century uh, Muslim who who kind of, he didn't come up with it, but articulated it more well-known for today, uh, for our use for today. The idea is of this, um, either the universe had a beginning at that one point, or it has always existed. So the problem we run into is if the universe has always existed, then you have almost deified the universe itself. Yeah. Or you go to a point in time when something moved something, which is the unmoved mover. The problem with an infinite eternity past for the universe is if it is if it is infinite in a in the past, then the problem with that is it never catches up to the present. Uh, William Lane Craig uses this argument and uh, talks about a domino effect. So the domino is continually falling this way, but has not time to catch up in this way. So if it's always moving in the past, it never catches up to the causation for the future. We never get to that point where we are in the present. And so that's kind of some of the, just a crude representation of that argument. Uh, in, in closing, something had to move something. And you get the unmoved mover causing which is God, we would come to the conclusion that that is, uh, that is, um, that is God. The, the conclusion, or the, the, therefore, the conclusion part of the Kalam is that God is that necessary being that moves. So the third argument we want to talk a little bit about is the teleological argument. Uh, to kind of think about that, telos means uh, design or goal, uh, in in the um, in the Greek telos, what is the goal? What is the design of uh, of um, of what we see? Is there design in creation? Is does the world seem to have evidence of a designer? Does it have a rhyme or a reason about it? And so that really is what we're talking about uh, when we're talking about the teleological argument. So this is really, really popular today uh, when you're talking about um, the defense of intelligent design as far as creation. And uh, these are some things we've talked pretty extensively about, uh, that the universe itself has the appearance of design to it. Uh, that uh, particularly, uh, one, one, I think, one good place to, to kind of think through without laying out the the argument itself, the premises is uh, is the Earth. 
You know, the earth sets in what is considered to be a life zone, uh, and which means if the earth tilts in one way or the other, all the inhabitants would either burn up or freeze, just, mm-hmm. just slightly tilted uh, away from the sun or too close to the sun. Uh, we, are, we set in a universe where all the bigger planets seem to shield uh, us from meteorites and other things. So looking at it from, you know, looking back at our solar system and the, and the earth, we are in a perfect place in the universe to support life. And if I'm looking at that, I would say, well, man, that looks like that has some design to it. Even a lot of your um, naturalist folks, materialistic folks, uh, atheistic folks, uh, scholars and, and, and of the sort would say that it looks as if the universe uh, has some design to it. What are y'all thoughts on the teleological argument or that from design? Um, now we've talked about it before, but as far as natural theology, but this is where we get down to the the argument itself. Yeah, I mean, we so a lot of these ideas kind of cross over. I yeah. just talked about uh, the universe and the uh, the fine tuning of the universe, mm-hmm. but also I think about uh, biology, um, you know, the, the cell, mm-hmm. um, what they would call the irreducible machine. Um, you know, if you would, or if you're thinking in terms of evolution and and how you go from uh, mm-hmm. you know a little one cell organism over a long course of time to um, mm-hmm. you know being a, a human being, um, you reason through that and um, you study the human cell and um, how it's what you would call an irreducible machine. It's made up of uh, many moving and working parts. To where, if you uh-huh. remove just one of those things, uh, it's useless. It, it has it. It yeah. it doesn't live. It, it doesn't work. Um, and that idea of you know having these parts develop over a long period of time just doesn't hold up to logic. And when you take out uh, you know one, one look like a mitochondria or um, something like that in the cell. You remember? I remember learning about those those things in like fourth and fifth grade, and wondering what in the world, um, <laughs> it, why is this useful? And um, never would I have thought that it would be a theological argument. But uh, when you really think think through it, uh, it just doesn't add up logically to say that uh, we got that over a course of, of millions of tiny changes. I've heard the. Uh or I guess an analogy given for like, if you look at a, like the building that we're in now or any building, it's like, how do you know that someone built it? And someone will say like, well, cause it's there. Yeah. You know, and it, it's, it show and the building, you're just, you know, kind of like using the same idea of like the library with books and let, uh, words and letters, a bomb didn't explode and a house was built. You, it has this intricate design and it shows that, you know, yeah, that, that's the argument of complexity. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a system of complexity mm-hmm. points to uh, intelligence putting it together. Yeah. Right. Well, the um, skeptics, you know, that kind of refute or try to refute the, the argument for design, uh, although they might say, which all of these too, all these arguments would say that, uh, it has the appearance of design to it, but that does not 
mean that the designer is the God of the Christian scriptures. And, and that is the argument for many of these. Well, okay, so there is, there might be a being um, that is higher, a maximally great being, but how do you know this is the God of the Bible? And so they would charge folks like you and I, who are believers, with um, adding God into you know, this and, and to be fair, how do you how do you know it isn't? Right. Um, you, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think it was um, Ken Ham um, said we all have assumptions at mm-hmm. some point. So which assumptions does logic and reasoning? Uh, yeah. um, is mo- you know most logical, so mm-hmm. everything uh, has as far as you talking about origins and talking about um, the existence of God and design, or uh, just mm-hmm. talking about about um, where we came from. No matter where you go with that, there's assum- assumptions involved. Um, when we get when we go in the past. We get to a point where there is no recorded history, mm-hmm. and beyond that, it's all assumption. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point too about, especially about the teleological argument for design, uh, because there are some folks who will really go out of their way to explain the universe and to deify in some way the universe, mm-hmm. and so uh, they'll come up with things like um, the multiverse, and a multiverse. Um, you know, proponents of that would you know say there's all these different little universes. But the problem with that is you can't see it, you can't measure it, you don't, you can't. There's it's a hypothesis again. It's, it's a, a hypothesis, an assumption. Um, like I said, no matter where you go with origins, um, there is going to be some speculation yeah. and some assumption. Yeah. So to to say that. Everything, uh, when you start talking about creation and God, is uh, adding God in the gaps. It's, it's really just an unfair um, argument because uh, everybody is adding um, their yeah. uh, presuppositions into the gaps. Mm-hmm. So it just all goes back to reasoning and uh, logic. And we'll talk a little bit, too, about uh, um, you know the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God um, right. writ- that's written on our hearts. Mm-hmm. The, the evolutionary process is built with the same premise. Um, there are certain things that you, you just cannot observe uh, in, in the evolutionary process. Uh, there's things you can't observe. Um, but it's almost to a degree taken on faith on their behalf, too. Uh, the one thing that I think is really damaging to um, more of an evolutionary way of thinking uh, is well, there's design, so it looks at like there's design there. But what's lacking in the evolutionary sense is the lack of purpose. There's no purpose for human beings if we come from a blob or if we come from, uh, you know, up out of the ocean on a rock or you know some primordial ooze or whatever it might be. There's no, there's no purpose there, and so. If you if you really follow to the trajectory of, of human history, uh, you'll see why this way of evolutionary thinking, in terms of even Nazi Germany, 
was so damaging because they held to this evolutionary Superman way of thinking where human beings have, you know, there's no real genuine purpose. You take that element out and you're up to all kind of evils. Yeah. Uh, Holocaust is an example of that. The strong man, you know, will survive. And that's what really evolution teaches. It might have a sense of design to it, but they would say it's over billions of years of, um, uh, you know, billions of, of years of evolution. We'll talk a little bit more about that in future podcasts about creation, not not even versus evolution, but just discussing both of the of the two together. But I think they all get, this all goes hand in hand, um, especially when you're talking about design. Is there a design, and is it the God of Scripture, or is it some other means, um, you know, for existence? Let's uh, let's brew some co- some coffee. We'll talk about our our brew of the week, which is which is Buscardu, and we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. All right. So today we are uh, we are featuring the Buscardu Fresh Roasted Coffee Company uh, Organic Blend. This is the After Dark, uh, and the description on this was a very very dark roast and indeed it is uh this is a company out of new jersey and we talked about doing a random uh mystery uh mystery pick last week we were going to go in the store and and kind of go down the aisle and just pick the first bag that we've seen uh but um i got this in the mail from noah my son noah in florida he sent this to us uh, unbeknownst to me so uh, this is a good chance to review a mystery a mystery blend, a mystery roast. And so uh, I'm going to add in my last um, last uh, bit of coffee grounds to, to our pour over. Now for this particular brew, we want, we're going to try a pour over. We haven't featured a pour over yet. Um, simply some folks, I mean, there's a real genuine art to a pour over, right temperature, uh, right distribution, uh, but we are not, we are not, uh, baristas. Um, and so we do the best that we can to enjoy the cup. Um, I mean, I know there's a science to many guys who do a pour over, but, uh, we're just simply grinding up our coffee and we're going to try to evenly distribute as best we can, uh, the, you know, the, the water, you know, kind of a slow drip. Uh, the filter that we have come with it was a, a metal, uh, mash, uh, filter, but we added another paper filter because it really does seep through kind of quickly, and you want it to kind of slow uh, a slow drip on this pour over. So we're going to get our water, and we're going to we'll pour it up, and we'll enjoy this uh, cup together, and then we'll review it at the end. Again, this is Busker Dew Coffee Company. The website you can see on the back of the on the back of the bag. So, like I said, there's some uh, coffee houses. Chicago and many other areas that really have this down to an art with certain kettles and temperature. We're not doing that today. We're not baristas. We're just trying to enjoy the coffee uh, on our level. Okay, we're not scientists or anything. So uh, what I'm no, what I normally do with a pour over is I, you know, I do I do try to go a little slow with the with the pour over. You know, you don't just want to dump all your water in it. Give it time to. You know, to kind of absorb the water in the grinds, and see, so you can see a nice foam there. For dark roast, that's a really good. That's a really good sign. 
Um, a lot of dark roast, you might see a, a bit of an oil, you know, kind of oily. Um, and, you know, we're trying to make enough here for, for all of us to enjoy. And uh, I would probably say that that's probably a good amount right there. So, um, again, this is a slow, slower process. Back to where my your K cup or something like that, the coffee on the go, or uh, the processes that we're using are not necessarily made for the get up in the morning, put a K cup in, you know, on you know, kind of quick. Uh, these are more um, to enjoy, you know, coffee. Um, that's going to be strong, fellas. Yeah, give it a second pour. Yeah. That's going to be a little strong. So we're going to add a little bit more here. <clears throat> be a little strong there. Oh, well, okay. It's got the other filter. It's got that filter. So... And that might be why we need this second pour. All right, we'll try that. Yeah, let that drain now. I'm not sure about that. Okay. Yeah, so as you can see, um, very dark, and it's roast. And one of the descriptions on this is after dark, dark chocolate uh, smoke, jaw tingling. It is a very, it is a very good dark roast, and. Uh, I will say I was very impressed, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit uh, in the review um, at the end of the podcast. Uh, we'll let that drain on down. Uh, we'll come back and jump back into the arguments for the existence of God. We'll talk about the moral argument and then end it up with uh, the argument um, for the existence of God using the resurrection, the, the bodily historical resurrection of Jesus. Stay tuned. We'll... Uh, We'll get to those points in just a few moments. All right, so we are moving into uh, theistic arguments for the existence of God, uh, a little bit closer to the end of, of the arguments we've set up. So we talked about the ontological, uh, we've talked about the cosmological, teleological. I want to spend some time talking about the moral argument for the existence of God. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the resurrection as an argument for the existence of God. Uh, as you can tell, we can't, uh, well, we can, but it's not practical to jump to the resurrection, especially if you're talking to a person that might be more skeptical. Um, and so you're, you're kind of walking through these arguments with reasoning. Uh, and this isn't addressing those folks who say, well, we don't need those arguments because we, we, we base it off of faith. Okay, we know that you have to have faith. We know that it is the Holy Spirit that draws. We, we understand that. But you might have conversations with people and you use these arguments as stepping stones so that they might listen to your argument concerning the resurrection and the gospel. So these are simply stepping stones uh, to, um, to further conversation. But the moral argument is, a, I think, a bigger one. Uh, more so than the theolo teleological or design, a cause and effect through the cosmological or the on ontological, that of being, uh, the moral argument deals with right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit more pointing towards special revelation because what is, the, what is our foundation 
of right and wrong? And is there an absolute right and wrong? So uh, talking about the moral argument, let's uh, let's talk about that for a moment. Um, what are let me get your let me get your thoughts on on this argument or the moral um, argument? Again, we're not laying out the syllogism for the logic for the argument itself, the premises. We're just going to kind of discuss uh, how we see how the moral argument fits into the grand design or the the you know the grand argument for the existence of God. How does the moral argument play into? Well, you know, you mentioned uh, the, more, more, the moral law kind of have, <clears throat> having a little bit of, uh, in, in its nature, uh, special revelation. And I, I would even say uh, morality has one foot in the door of uh, general revelation and one foot in the door of special revelation. As, as, as to say, um, you know, we all have a general understanding of morality written on our nature um because of sin it is corrupted mm-hmm. uh, you know we corrupt so, morality we make mm-hmm. it uh inward and and towards self um in a lot of ways uh, we earlier um we were discussing topics like uh, abortion and and how um that argument will will tend to go towards uh, someone who's for it would say, well, you're infringing on my right to choose and you take away the um, humanity of, of the unborn baby. I mean, that's how we kind of, as as a fallen human being, corrupt it. Um, but again, all both arguments have a sense of oughtness um, saying you ought not to infringe on my right or you ought not to infringe on the unborn's, unborn's rights. Uh, which just point to there being morality, and uh, just the fact that there are some universal um, moral things across uh, all societies. Like we know it's wrong uh, to kill. Um, you know, pretty much every society um, that's ever existed would say it's wrong to kill. They have punishment for murder. Uh, you know, some people might would argue, well, there's been some really barbaric. Um, civilizations over history. I think about um, um, the uh, missionaries in Ecuador in the 50s that were um, murdered really just for uh, just for being there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we can get into what happened with those people as another argument for um, the existence of um, the God, God of the Bible, seeing the transformation of those people over yeah. the years. But uh, even in those barbaric societies that um, were known for killing and for um, for destruction within their mm-hmm. own uh, society it was still um, considered wrong to kill each other mm-hmm. and uh, just the the basic morals that are written on our hearts even though we corrupt them like I just said um, speak to, um, where did that morality come from? Um, and that would be obviously a moral lawgiver um, who we know as God. And just jumping off of that, like I, I think about like as early as I can think back in my my life as a as a kid, I remember uh, the first time I stole anything, it was uh, it was a piece of my mother's jewelry, 
which I'm sure many young boys have done that before. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but at the same time, I even before I was found out, I I felt guilt for doing so. I remember I remember like very early on, and because I because what I did with it was uh, I, I remember I read a book uh, had a book where a, a kid put his mother's jewelry in the toilet. I didn't do that. I actually put it in the uh, air conditioned vents, and we had to go find it. But I remember after I did it, I felt guilty for it. And I was like, well, I, I why you know? So it's like almost as if it was written like even before she told me. I didn't have to be taught that mm-hmm. taking was wrong. I already knew knew right. that it was. Because it was, because again, like like you said, it was it's mm-hmm. written on on all of our hearts. Same way with, um, not having to teach a toddler or child how to get angry or steal or uh, sin. Likewise, yeah. is written yeah. in every one of us. So morality and sin, um, and so you know the argument goes: if there's moral law and oughtness. A good resource for this is uh, C.S. Lewis lays out a good moral argument for the existence of God and mere Christianity. Many many of our listeners might know that at least C.S. Lewis, but he wrote a he wrote a work called Mere Christianity, and in that is a good argument for the um, existence of God through morality. And he would say the same thing that we all have this innate sense of oughtness, like the primitive. Um, civilizations and you know even in even in their tribes they have a set of rules or commands that they this is what you ought to do and so it's again written on our hearts um and i think it's a good indication that if there's a moral law and oughtness then there is a moral lawgiver that's where the argument would end um but of course i would challenge you know i would challenge our listeners to kind of flesh that out one thought that comes to mind um we talked about evolution is this evolutionary process, quote unquote, of morality? And evolution evolutionists would say that morality has progressed over time. We move beyond this set of absolutes as far as what God has given in His commands in the Decalogue or Ten Commandments. And uh, I've seen some very um, one issue with this way of thinking, as far as to say that morality has evolved. Well, to me, and maybe you guys can chime in on this, but to me, if that's the sense that evolution, that morality has evolved with evolution, like we have progressed, then it seems like we're going backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a society, I mean, it don't take you very long to look yeah. at the way, <laughs> at the uh, at our at the, the, our world today to see well, we're not progressing. We are not evolving for the better as far as morality. So what are your guys' thoughts on morality as far as in terms of evolving? Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, It's been a while since I've really studied evolution itself, but I think kind of one of the the main uh, ideas in, in evolution would be when something evolves, it evolves, evolves to be more efficient and to be better. Is that is that correct? Yeah, survival of the fittest is kind of the yeah the survival of the yeah. fittest kind of kind of deal. Um, so it would kind of be a defeater almost to say the evolution hmm. has gone in a negative right. uh, and continued to build in a negative yeah. way. 
and uh, and I think the world we live in today we see mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Well, good. That's a moral argument, um, existence of God. Uh, if there is a moral law and oughtness, what I ought to do, then there must be yeah, I, moral law. Given I would say too, because somebody would say, "Well, that's just your opinion that uh, it's evolved uh, in a negative way." Um, but mm-hmm. I would also say 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 this um, in sharing the gospel with folks. One one uh, kind of common ground you can get with almost anyone is to say, "Do you think that there's something wrong with the world?" Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. pretty much a hundred percent will agree that something is wrong with the world. So while some people might would say, "Well, uh, you," it's just your opinion that the world is crazy. I, I think it's better. Um, when people are being honest, they know that the world is broken, yeah. and uh, yeah. and they know that this uh, quote evolution of morality um, is going backwards instead of forwards. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I've actually used that uh, to in evangelism uh, to to benefit because again, I'm no, I've taken notice that everyone's pretty much in agreement. That something is off, yeah, something that, is wrong. I mean, that leads you right to the phone. And it's, yeah, and rather than saying like, you know, just going to the typical, you know, you're a sinner, you need Jesus, which I I believe and I agree with, but it, I find that it's so much more effective, or at least for my uh, speaking with my own generation, which I do more often. I feel like saying like, don't you agree that something is off, and mm-hmm. and then pointing to like, well, I believe Jesus is the answer. Yeah, and. Yeah, so and I here's would, why. Yeah, and here's the, why. Yeah, it, it takes you right to the beginning of the gospel. Exactly. Uh, yeah. The fall of man and, and mm-hmm. sin has corrupted. Um, it's kind of a, a common ground starting point that something is broken. It's the best explanation yeah. for morality. Uh, the best explanation for morality or the lack of morality can be found and displayed in, in the scripture. Now, speaking of um, best explanation, our next um, our next topic is going to be on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus uh, as evidence for the existence of God. Okay, so the last argument that we're going to talk about, and probably one of the most important as far as uh, the Christian faith is concerned, is the resurrection. Paul even said in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian Creed, that uh, if the Lord had not be risen from the dead, then our faith, our faith is in vain. Uh, and so the resurrection of Jesus is what lays credibility to the Christian faith. If there was ever a place where skeptics could uh, try to dismantle the Christian faith, that would be uh, that would be uh, the place of attack the most would be on the on the resurrection. But we're going to talk about the resurrection. Uh, We're going to talk about the resurrection as an argument for the existence of God. And you might think that that is a jump, but we've talked about other arguments, uh, the ontological, cosmological, teleological, moral argument for God's existence. We've talked about those. So let's just say, for instance, um, we're talking to a skeptic and they uh, like Anthony Flew, who was an atheist, said, well, you know, and then come to the conclusion uh, through reason that there is an intelligent designer. Now, Anthony Flew never made the transition from intelligent design to be- being a believer, but he come to the understanding there must be an intelligent designer. 
And so let's say, for instance, we have somebody like Anthony Flew, who mm-hmm. was a skeptic, uh, atheist, and then come to understand a, an intelligent designer. And you get him to that point. Now, where do we go? Well, we go to the gospel, and we go to the we go, hopefully, get to the point of the resurrection. So, how do we begin to articulate to a a newly christened theist? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we get them to the point of the resurrection as further evidence for God's existence? How do we get them there? Do you think? Well, one one thing you can point them towards um, is the the people who saw the risen Christ, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, particularly uh, his disciples, mm-hmm. and they, you know, all pretty much went to their death um, over uh, this claim of uh, Christ uh, resurrected from the dead. Um, something that they saw and they witnessed. Right. You know, it's one thing. It's one thing for somebody today to die for their faith in Christ, and you know, that, not to discredit that at all. I mean, that's a huge thing. But it's one thing for somebody today who wasn't there and didn't actually witness it with their own eyes to die for their faith. Mm-hmm. While that is very uh, remarkable um, to think of, on people who witnessed what they were claiming mm-hmm. to die for their faith. That's a whole a whole new level. Yeah. Um, people don't die for something that they know to be false. People don't die um, for a hoax. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe one or two might would be crazy and, and might would die for something that they know is a lie, but not, not a whole uh, mm-hmm. group of, of, of people like we see with the disciples. Um, and then, you know, to kind of further that thought, um, you know, maybe if they were trying to, uh, so to like protect their livelihood or something like that, um, somebody might would die for, for a hoax then. Um, but these guys were, were dying, uh, uh, under persecution. They weren't protecting, uh, making millions of, of mm-hmm. dollars. Right. Um, they were they were being persecuted and uh, suffering because of their claims. They weren't yeah. benefiting um, in a worldly aspect from it. So, yeah. I think that that is a huge starting point um, to to be able to to start at. All right, the eyewitnesses, right? Yeah. The uh, scripture that comes to mind is First John one one. Uh, that scripture says that which we which was from the beginning, uh, which uh, we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So not only are the disciples, not only is John talking about the time when they walked with Jesus and heard him, but they witnessed his mm-hmm. bodily resurrection. Uh, they they saw him uh, in his uh, post-resurrection uh, form. Yeah. Um, what what else might? So yeah, eyewitnesses. What else might might come to mind? Um, it's like a lot of the like little details that a lot of people overlook sometimes. That kind of, for me, kind of grow the the support, or I guess the or my belief in the validity of the resurrection. It's like you have things like. Um, the fact that the first uh, people to account for the empty tomb were women. 
in a time when women were not considered to be reliable uh, accounts. So I think that's called like the embarrassment argument. Mm -hmm. So it would be embarrassment for the women to find to give witness instead of the men. And if you were trying to forge a new religion or a new belief or anything, um, it would be very unlikely. I mean, it wouldn't make sense to use women as the first account for the for the empty tomb um for for me i mean that doesn't obviously that's not like a okay obviously but it's still for me it it adds foundation for the um that that the the claim that christ rose again is not just an out there claim it has um it's backed by something um in addition to you know the uh eyewitnesses as well as you know it doesn't it doesn't resemble something that seemed like it was forged by man yeah and i've heard opposition to that of saying that you know that was um, purposefully put there for the idea of saying well we wouldn't have picked Mm -hmm. women because women aren't respected but that's just a that's a little that's a stretch yeah um you know we talked about earlier how uh in in just talking about the existence of god people will use the God in the gaps argument yeah. where you're inserting God um, into what you observe. And, and I would say it's quite the exact same thing when you, when uh, skeptics start saying, well, they did that like that on purpose yeah. or they, or, or they start trying to come up with defeaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're inserting uh, their viewpoint into it to try to make their point. So proponents, uh, again, we we are standing on the shoulders of theologians and uh, philo- uh, philosophers of the past. So, so these are uh, most of the time, you know, hear somebody say, "I have a new idea." Uh, there are hardly any new ideas, and if you think you got a new idea, spend a few hours in the library, and you'll find that your ideas are not new ideas. And so, some of the proponents of the historical uh, defended the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus or men like Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig, Mike Lacona. These are some guys where we're just borrowing from them uh, and uh, utilizing, uh, you know, utilizing their their logic and uh, their navigation through the biblical text and ancient text too. So um, again, none of these are new ideas from us. Um, some of the things that... Um, skeptics might say would be that the body of Jesus was stolen. And that's even recorded in the gospel accounts um, where they would say, well, the disciples came and stole away the body. So let's speak to that for a moment. Um, What would be a way to dismantle the stolen body uh, argument? Firstly, uh, the part I do like about that is that that completely nullifies any idea that the tomb was not empty because mm-hmm. they admitted it to it. Yeah. Um, that, oh, you stole the body. Well, that means the tomb must be empty. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, kind of go back to what Jason hit on before. Like if, why would I go to all to the point of death knowing that the body was not risen from that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but instead it was stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, y'all can hit on that more, but to me, that's yeah. I agree. We see uh, validity that the tomb was empty. Yeah, they admitted um, to it. Yeah, and then we mm-hmm. see, so we know the tomb was empty, and now we know multiple people died 
mm-hmm. um, defending why the tomb was empty when they witnessed it. So at any time they could have easily, you know, um, on either account, if uh, you know if the disciples had stolen the body, being pressed to the point of persecution, they could have easily said, "No, oh, wait a minute, hold guys, here's the body." Could paraded the body of of Jesus through the street, and that would have been the end of the Christian faith altogether. Yeah. Um, and so that that's pretty easily um, debunked. Again, these are arguments that uh, that are. They're pretty archaic. Um, what I mean is a lot of folks don't really use these arguments anymore, uh, but you do hear them from time to time. Um, but what we do find is the affirmation of the resurrection that is used more so than the folks that try to refute it, meaning that the changed life of the disciples, you know, their whole worldview changed. They changed to worshiping the Lord on the first day of the week, um, you know, and a lot of their changed their changed lives gives credence to that they saw something extraordinary happen, and the best explanation for that, of course, would be the empty tomb. Yeah, and I would say to that too. And uh, a lot of times, people say, "Well, you're you're using the scripture only um, to talk about these changed lives and and this and that, and and that's fine." Um, but we can still use that argument today as well. Um, I, I know we all know folks who, when they encountered Christ, uh, their lives were completely changed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think of you know, some friends I grew up with uh, who you would have never thought uh, would uh, be a, a you know, a ca- live for the cause for Christ. And, um you know, think about the scripture in John chapter six, where it says, "No one comes to the Father, or come, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father, um, who sent me, draws draws him." And um, God working in the lives of people, really, that's that's the ultimate yeah. uh, uh, proof, if you will, yeah. uh, of Christ. Um, I think of one of our mutual friends, uh, Heath Faircloth, uh, who was a pastor here in the area. Um, who's now uh, moved to the other side of the state, but um, you know, if you ever get a chance to hear his testimony, um, just mm. the Lord just bringing people out of a, a lifestyle where they were not seeking God, not even thinking about God, and he just completely turn, turns them upside down. Um, so it still happens today. So change lives, yeah. I think we can all probably give testimony to some degree of that. Yeah. Um, I remember my, one of my uncles um, coming to know the Lord, and I remember, I'll never forget it, um, I was probably, I don't know, maybe 15, 16. And I remember looking, and his, even the way his eyes looked were different. I mean, the Lord got a hold of him and changed him, and I'll never, I'll never forget that. And it's hard to refute somebody who goes and changes their whole worldview, you know, um, yeah. to even 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 Saul, Paul is a good example. He encountered something on the road to Damascus yeah. that changed his worldview. Uh, and he encountered, you know, the risen Christ, the risen Lord. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, for my for our own personal walk, I mean, 
for we're trying to be practical in, in talking about how we can share these things with other people. Uh, you know, even, you know, I talked about in previous podcasts, I don't remember the first time I heard about Jesus because I've been in church mm-hmm. since I was born, but I can still look back at my life and see how God has changed me when I understood the gospel, changed my way of thinking, um, and worked in my life. Um, while it may not be as observable um, in a uh, distinct way, where we see when we see somebody brought out of a a lifestyle that was you know what the world would say is far from God, when in reality we're all far from God before Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know where I'm going with this. Um, you know, where it's real observable in in some people's lives. Yeah. Um, when we tell our own story, um, we know where our hearts were. Yeah, and uh, that is a real practical and powerful way um, to get to Christ. Um, you know, we're framing this uh, portion of our discussion, and we've got somebody who um, is a theist. Now they understand that there's design and and there's a God. And when we start talking about Jesus and what He's done in our lives and how He's changed us, um, that is one really uh, practical yeah. way. Um, to get to Christ and get to get to the gospel, yeah. because people can argue all day long what God has done in history, mm-hmm. but, but there's no one more credible about your life than yep. you. Yeah. So, uh, another thing, um, kind of in opposition, I think we can we can learn a lot about the resurrection even through opposition, and one of the things that some folks would say about uh, Jesus and the resurrection would be that he never really died. Like he didn't die on the cross and they put him in the grave and the tomb and he, he was just merely sleeping or resting. Uh, again, I said that people don't really use these arguments, but you do come across them every now and then. So what's the problem with what they call the swoon theory? It's been a very long time since I've visited uh, or heard, really looked in depth with that, but I remember I know there's a, a medical position that explains uh, the 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 clear liquid coming out of the side oh, when he's speared, death, yeah. and that it's um, I don't know what the medical term for it, but it's I mean the the liquid itself once when Jesus was speared it was medical proof that that his heart had stopped and that mm-hmm. he was dead. You know, and I, I would say again on that, you know, I think that one reason you don't hear that one as much anymore is just pretty it's well. Pretty, it's yeah. absurd and it's pretty well been debunked. Yeah. But it still does come up. Some of those old older yeah. um, little talking points still do come up from time to time. And I would again say it's uh, the skeptics version of God in the gaps. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they're trying to get to... Uh, their their possible point. means to so make sure they yeah. have to add in something to mm-hmm. refute uh, refute yeah. well what we what we believe uh, well I can I can tell you that um, the way that these old older arguments are kind of abandoned now is that your newer not newer but your more um, maybe modern philosopher. Um, 
not even scholarly, they in one fell swoop would say, well, Jesus never existed. And so that's so. Hey, we can if these never existed, then none none of these did either. Uh, and so that is a that is another position which we're not going to talk about that because that's about as absurd as the swoon theory. Yeah. So um, no no uh, no reputable scholar no no, re- no reputable scholar biblical or non biblical no, no, no. that no, no reputable scholar holds that holds Jesus that, yeah. didn't exist. Um, yeah, the 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 prop the the thing with the swing theory, I think that is more um, compelling than what it actually really is, is that it plays into the changed lives of the apostles. And what I mean by that is, the apostles would not have followed a beaten and broken down, disfigured, zombified looking mm-hmm. Jesus, because that he would have came out of the tomb, beat up and mangled and he's going to say follow me you know it, it don't make much sense right yeah they would have not have followed a beaten broken down hey you're supposed to be the son of god and you know um and so it does play into the changed life i think that's more compelling yeah. right. well a couple more um things i want to talk about real quick and we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on these is the issue of um, group hallucination. Uh, <laughs> again, uh, some of these are a little bit older, but again, they do come up. And uh, just, so you, just so you'll be equipped to talk through them. Uh, so I'm going to address them real quick. The, the problem with the, the um, hip, hypnosis uh, hallucination theory is I've never in the history of history ever seen anywhere um, where a group have been hypnotized um, or hallucinated. I mean, even if everyone tripped on acid at the same time. They're not going to see the same thing. <laughs> no, they, they, they see different things. Yeah, different yeah. things. So that one's a bit absurd. And uh, I mean, even on the basis of what you might call in logic, the reductio ad absurdum, even if you were to start with such an absurd thought, you can never get to any logical conclusion with that at all. And, and then lastly is um, the, uh, the legend theory, is that over time the, the disciples began to write in legend uh, or began to see Jesus' resurrection as a legend. But the problem with that comes into the actual recording of what they wrote being closer, close to the events to where you leave little to no room at all for any legend to creep in. Yeah, and I think we're going to talk about that some next week. Yeah, uh, we'll elaborate on that. We're going to talk about the the scriptures and mm-hmm. um, the we have so many manuscripts now that that date back close to the original writings. I um, mean, we can date when the original writings happened, being very close to you know within the lifespan of a human back then. So these writings were coming out when there were people who were still alive when the things mm-hmm. happened. Um, so this idea of legend, um, you know, maybe that could be plausible for a, for a manuscript that was copied a thousand years later, but it's mm-hmm. just not plausible um, when you have a manuscript that dates in, you know, within a hundred years or closer uh, to the actual mm-hmm. writing, um, mm-hmm. 
where yeah. people were still alive. It's just not as plausible. Right. Yeah, we'll we'll talk you know a little bit more about that next uh, next week when we talk about uh, the Word of God and the validity of Scripture. Um, and so, yeah, tune in for that next uh, next episode. Uh, well, we're going to take a bit of a um, break for conclusion here. Talk about the coffee blend for the day. You guys have anything else to add to the argument of the resurrection? Okay. No, just uh, in general on uh, on the the topic, broad topic for today, the existence of God. There's so many great resources. Um, out there, um, I always like to recommend uh, Lee Strobel for entry level stuff um, because he uh, kind of he interviewed a lot of the people we talked about today, like uh, Gar- uh, William, Lane, William Lane Craig, Gary Habermas, mm-hmm. um, and people like that. And then in his books, um, they're sourced. So if you want to go deeper, you you can you're kind of pointed toward. Yeah. Um, some of those the works of people that are experts in those fields um, but case for the case for a creator um, is a really good entry level um, book just for the idea of theism um, and then his book the case for Christ which was his first book um, is more like what we've done in this last segment you know, talking about, gap about the, yeah, bridging the gap to... between theism and Christ yeah. uh, but those are, those are good entry level um, books. They even got student editions, which I, I may have given you one of those, Lloyd, in the past. Long time ago. Um, yep. Um, but this is just a good entry level mm-hmm. idea or entry level book to get you mm-hmm. on these ideas. Yep. All right. So, first, I want to thank Noah. Thank you for sending the coffee for today, unexpected treat for us. Uh, so, thank you for that. Um, we of course reviewed the Booskaroo. Booskaroo.com is the is the website. Uh, they are a family owned and operated uh, coffee company roaster out of New Jersey, uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey. Um, this particular roast that we enjoyed today uh, was a very very dark roast, as it was uh, described appropriately. So, uh, this one is the after dark. Uh, blend uh, the and it says dark chocolate smoke and jaw tingling. What do y'all think? Was it jaw tingling? <laughs> yeah, it was very strong, very uh, strong. I would say out of what I've had here, it's probably my favorite. Yeah, um, I liked it. Now, when I like a, a dark coffee, um, I like the the bold coffee tones. There's kind of two flavors in dark coffee. There's the bold strong coffee tones and then there's kind of a what they I guess they call it an earthy tone mm-hmm. where you can yeah. it almost tastes dirty and those aren't my favorite um, and I would say that one's kind of in the middle there uh, there's a little bit of that earthy tone in there mm-hmm. but it definitely has bold uh, coffee tones as well um, so I liked it okay um, you for the type of, of flavor palette it has um, it's definitely a good bean yeah um, it, like I said, it doesn't strike in my wheelhouse, if you will, of what the coffees I really, really like. Okay. Uh, so for myself personally, I'd probably give it uh, a four out of five beans, uh, if you will. Uh, mainly because uh, it is definitely top-notch 
for the style of uh, of roast that it is. Yeah. Um, like I said, I just don't like those earthy ones. A French roast, which is a real earthy roast, I, I don't like at all. So um, I give it a, a four out of five beans. How about you, Lloyd? What's your bean rating there? Um, I'll do four out of five because I don't want to do five out of five and then find one that I like better. So, Well, if, if I was going to rate this on a dark roast for me, uh, if I'm putting it on a scale for a dark roast, I'd probably give this for me a five. Okay. Because I, I don't normally drink a dark roast, although I, I you know, I'll do enjoy every now and then. But um, if I was to put this on a scale for dark roast for me, uh, it would be a five. Yeah, you know, for for myself, just for my uh, the evolution of my coffee drinking, um, for the longest time, I said I'd like dark roast the best um but i was real specific in particular um, because i did not like the earthy dark roast um, and i think i just realized i like strong coffee um, <laughs> better than weak coffee and i've kind of now transitioned to where i like a medium medium dark coffee just brewed strong um yeah. so uh, so my my three and a half to four rating on this isn't on uh uh, uh, like on the bean itself, it's just on the 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 flavor palette that that this particular bean has. Okay, so what are you thinking about next week? Um, well, Jason White's gonna uh, gonna do a roast for us, videoing the roasting process and all of that. So we've uh, we've hit kind of our. Uh, brewing brewing knowledge uh ceiling here we've done uh the vacuum siphon and we've done the french press uh, french press and the aero press and today we did pour over and really that's kind of that's our go-to that's kind of it for us uh unless you do k-cup yeah i mean we maybe we'll do a drip coffee one day but uh and i think you know as we review different uh beans coming up we probably will uh, brew them in different ways to kind of be able to give a more yeah uh, uh, complete review so out of all of the brewing processes that we've worked through what would be your favorite no doubt the uh, vacuum siphon yeah no doubt yeah the vacuum siphon make uh, brewer is for me it they all and they all have their uh their place uh the vacuum siphon is probably uh overall the best it, it gives a really you really get to taste the flavor of the coffee yeah it brings um, the yeah. it brings the flavor tones out you don't if it's a bitter bean it pulls the bitterness out so you still get uh the flavor um like i said last week the aeropress is probably the most time efficient of of all of the premium type brewing techniques uh, it's a single single serving size. Yeah. Um, yeah. By the time mm-hmm. you grind your coffee up, if you um, mm-hmm. are are heating with a electric kettle, it's yeah. it's warm. You know, so, it's uh, pretty quick. Funny so. story about about that. Most of the time, when well, a lot of times when we're making coffee, chopping the beans, you know, cutting the beans, uh, breaking them, or whatever. This whole process, if somebody's in here, like, um, or deacons or whatever, 
And I was like, that sure looks like a lot of work for some coffee. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you have to understand that I, I myself, I probably, I might drink three, maybe four cups a day of coffee. And when I do, they are, they are made in a more premium way uh, versus quick and on the go. So, um, so yeah, thank you again, Noah, for the Buscaroo. Uh, we enjoyed that. Um, Jason White's going to treat us next week to some, uh, some roasted, uh, home roasted yes. beans, I guess. What yeah. All, of, all of these beans have been fresh roasted, but yeah. next week will definitely be definitely the freshest. Fresh. Okay, for further discussion, further reading, uh, if you want to explore uh, other arguments for the existence of God, maybe something that we did not talk about today, uh, I would recommend Mike Lacona's book on uh, 50 Arguments for Faith in the Bible. This is using history, philosophy, and also science, and of course the Bible as well. Uh, there is a whole chapter devoted to the hallucination theory on the uh, historical resurrection of the Lord Jesus and evidence for that. Uh, to further your reading on the on these evidence, I would recommend this particular volume. There'll be a link uh, for uh, Amazon uh, for you to check that out if you want to further your reading uh, on that. Uh, check out next week uh, as we... Uh, we'll explore uh, further the character and nature of God, but in the realm of the Word of God. And we'll talk about uh, why, uh, why we place uh, such emphasis on the Scripture. And we'll answer the question, does God's Word have authority? Is it authoritative? And is it, and is it trustworthy? Join us for episode number five on the validity of the Word of God. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us, and we hope today's discussion has encouraged and challenged you. Please join us again next week as we discuss biblical truths over a fine cup of coffee.